thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. And The Naked Scientist is brought to you by Grosch Premium Lager. Grosch, choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18. Time now for The Naked Scientist, of course. We'll be stripping science to its bare essentials by answering all of your questions or your most pressing science questions. Do f- Feel free to join us in this conversation. Are we taking your calls on 011-883-0702 in Cape Town, 021-446-0567. And now, ancient tooth plaque shows that our ancestors used to feast on weeds. Chris, I mean, this new research shows that our ancestors used to feast on weeds. Why is this important? (laughs) Well, this is a piece of work which has come from a lady called Karen Hardy. She works in Barcelona and also at York University in Britain. And the question she's interested in is what happens when people stop being hunter-gatherers and they start to embrace agriculture and live in villages and towns and cities about five to 10,000 years ago? Because there's very little evidence as to what actually happened to people how their diets changed and how their practices changed because the sorts of plants they were growing and and therefore eating aren't well preserved. But she's been in the Sudan working with a team there at a burial site called Al-Kidei and this spans a period of some 9,000 years or so between the oldest remains and some of the youngest. And so some of the, the remains there are very, very old and predate agriculture and some are after agriculture got invented, if you like. And what she was able to do was to scrape the plaque, the calculus, off of the teeth. And the plaque, as you'll know, is the hard stuff that builds up around the gum line that your dentist has to scrape off with that sharp tool. And plaque is made by bacteria that live in your mouth. But it's also porous. There are lots of little gaps and holes. And by putting it under the microscope from these teeth, some of which were 9,000 years old, she was able to find tiny particles of starch grains which were released by the plants that these people would have been eating, also chemicals that were produced by bacteria in their mouths and also in the plants that they were eating. And in this way she was able to piece back together what happened to people's diets. And in particular there's this one uh, very starchy root vegetable which is called Cyperus rotundus which largely we regard it as a nuisance weed these days, but in days gone by, it was a good source of starch, so people did actually eat it. And she can see in these specimens, which um, she's written all this up in the journal PLOS One this week, that, excuse me, what you see is that in the early days, when people didn't have farming, they they ate loads of this starch-rich root tuber. Then farming gets invented, 
but they carry on eating it. So why would they carry on eating it when they've got much more nutritious, much more flavoursome sources of starch? Well, she thinks that because it has antibi antibiotic properties, that perhaps our ancient ancestors were aware of this mm. and they were using these roots and consuming them for their health benefits as, as well as a source of food. Does this dramatically or significantly change how we've always understood what our ancestors did, Chris? Well, it gives us a whole new window. Um, Karen Hardy in her paper says this is going to revolutionise our understanding because it gives us a window into the plant world that our ancestors were able to, or our, our, our ancestors were eating. Previously, we had no idea what sorts of things they were eating apart from things that were found at archaeological sites. But obviously, it's one thing to find a plant at an archaeological site. It's another to say someone ate it. Mm -hmm. If it's in the plaque in their mouth, they must they have clearly eaten it. ate it. <laughs> yes, indeed. You can't dispute that kind of evidence, indeed. So do you have any calls for Chris this morning at 14 minutes to 10? 11 Cape Town, 21 Mike is in Santon. Hi, Mike. Hi, Chris. Um, my question this morning is on, on air crash investigation on DSTV. Um, whenever they find the black box, um, either in water or on there, they always seem to they always seem to put it in water. So the guys will find it in water, take it out, put it in another container, and then they seem to pour water. I'd like to know why would they put water into Would that not degrade it even further? What, what would be the reasoning behind that? Hi, Mike. Well, obviously, they're not in water when they are um, on the aeroplane, so they don't need to be in water. It's a sealed container. They're very, very resilient. They're very heavy as well because they've got lots of protection on them. They can withstand, obviously, the huge impacts and forces they're subjected to during a crash. Um, there shouldn't be any reason why they need water around them unless, of course, they've been in a fire and they're hot. Um, there's a chemical spill and they may have chemicals or fuel on them and they don't want that to get in contact with their skin. There could be hydraulic fluid on them from various hydraulic lines that run inside the aeroplanes and that's nasty for skin and the environment. So it may well be that they were putting them in something safe uh, if they were contaminated on the outside to keep them um, from yeah. spreading that material or burning something. But there shouldn't be any reason why they should have to do that. It just seems very consistent every time, I've, and I've noticed that over five, six programs where they literally would take it out of the water, out of the ocean, or whatever it is, wherever they found on it, and they seem to put in another container with water inside and then transport it. It just seems so strange to me. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to have to admit defeat, Mike, on that one. If anyone knows the answer why you need to keep your black box in water uh, in another container after you recover it, please let me know because I'd be fascinated. Yes, and give us a ring if you have uh, something to add to that. Uh, the number to dial is 011-8830702. Cape Town is 021-446-0567. Any of your burning scientific questions for uh, Chris, the naked scientist, um, he's standing by to take your calls. Uh, let me just uh, read some of your SMSs. Uh, coming up on earlier issues uh, that we had discussed about Mandela Day, saying we don't need Mandela Day to do good. We must encourage people to do good on a daily basis. This Mandela Day thing is, is sickening. Uh, according to Ali, it's just all propaganda. But it's a start, isn't it, uh, Ali? We have to get people involved in their communities. And, and what better way to do it than on uh, this date? Uh, we have a question for Chris. Ruth in Ravonia. Hi. Hello, Chris. I believe there's, well, I, I know there is a scientist in a university in America who is talking about the fourth state of water. He talks of it as a gelatinous state at the interface between water and a, and a water-liking uh, substance. Do you hold any uh, store by this? Is it 
And they're also starting to make water that is called stable water based on his research and marketing it big time. Is this valid or is this just hype? Hi, Ruth. Well, I haven't come across this. Um, doesn't mean it's not not true, obviously. I haven't come across anyone doing anything like that. Um, I'd be interested in a reference to it. If you can send me some more details about it, I'd, I'd have a look. Um, water is a fascinating substance, though, and if it wasn't for the weird behaviour of water, none of us would be here. There aren't very many things that when you turn them from a liquid into a solid, they get bigger, and in the course of getting bigger, they therefore become less dense and therefore they float. Because you can imagine if uh, water did what most solids do when they turn from a liquid into a solid and they shrank and got more dense, then all of the ice that formed at the surface of an ocean would sink and this would freeze more water at the top, which would sink, and eventually you'd end up with solid ice all over your ocean. And that doesn't happen. It happens the other way round. So water is very, very special stuff and, and has three phases, all within a very narrow temperature range obviously we have solid and then heated up a bit you get liquid water heated up a bit more and you get steam water vapor and that happens all over a very narrow temperature range and these interesting properties are why we think water is so fundamentally important for life i haven't come across people actually doing interesting things at the interface where water meets a surface but that is important too because the reason water forms ice and has these weird properties is because the water molecules arrange themselves in very special ways in space. So if you can send me a reference, I'll certainly look it up. Ruth, thank I you. will do. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you so much uh, for uh, your call this morning. A few SMSs for you, Chris. Uh, this question from Elias. He says, do plants and trees give off carbon dioxide at night? And the other question is, why is it that when we are cold, if we huddle together, we generate more body heat? Okay, so trees and trees and plants at night first. Mm-hmm. The answer is yes, absolutely. Plants run a process called photosynthesis. This is where energy and sunlight hits chlorophyll, the green substance in their leaves, and it drives a chemical reaction where you take carbon dioxide out of the air, you mix it with water pulled up from the soil by the roots, and you produce molecules of glucose, the sugar, in the leaves and you also produce oxygen as a byproduct which you return to the atmosphere. During the day photosynthesis means that the plant has enough oxygen for its own use, it has enough sugar for its own use and it has a demand for its carbon dioxide it produces so you net see a release of oxygen into the air. During the night though when there's no sunshine photosynthesis turns off but the plant tissue is living, and this living tissue needs to consume sugar and oxygen to produce energy to keep the plant cells alive. So it winds that equation back, and you burn sugar in the presence of oxygen to produce carbon dioxide, and you also liberate some water. And the carbon dioxide and the water will come out from the leaves, and you'll therefore see a higher concentration of carbon dioxide around plants and trees at night time. Now, at the temperature one, yes. um, every single one of us is a nice big bag of chemical reactions, all of which are exothermic. Mm -hmm. We're giving out heat. We're converting the chemical energy in food into kinetic energy of of the particles in our bodies rushing around, and therefore we're hot. And as a general rule, the human body runs at about 2 watts per kilogram. So your average person who weighs, say, 50, 60 kilos, they're pumping out heat at the rate of maybe 100 watts. 
So if you had 10 people all bunched together in a room, that's a kilowatt of heat they're giving off. And this is why when you have 100, 200, 300 people in a nightclub or a theatre, you need a really good aircon system because there's a lot of heat being given off by all these people and you've got to get rid of it. So if you huddle together on a cold night, then you're merging your contribution, your 100 watts, with the person next to you's 100 watts, snuggle up together, keep a blanket round you, and you therefore got a, a reasonable energy supply to keep you happy. Thanks, uh, Chris. Now, Nazim has a, a rather curious question from Athlone. Hi, Nazim. Hi there. Hi. Uh, I'd like to ask the naked scientist, why is it every time I take a shower, before I take a shower, I get undressed, and I find there's a lot of fluff inside my belly button? You know, I, I wear a vest, a cotton vest, or whether it's a white one or whatever different color it is. Whatever I have on before I uh, take a shower, obviously, you get undressed. And then uh, I just, I, I have fluff inside my belly button. <laughs> and yes. and and your question is what why yeah, or, or what what causes it or <laughs> how does it get there because it's not like I, I wear a new uh, vest every time it's something that is washed so I don't there's no loose fluff on it as to say you know but after Indeed. the evening you know when I get undressed and then because I I have a little bit of fat on my belly you know so I'm able to put my finger inside my belly button and then I, I take out fluff from there. Well, what happens uh, is that when you wear clothes, the clothes are made of cotton and other fabrics. Every time you move, you're stretching and bending the fabric. And this is pulling the individual fibres of the fabric against each other. And so they're rubbing backwards and forwards against each other, a bit like sandpaper rubbing backwards and forwards against a piece of wood. And as you know, if you sand down a piece of wood, you get sawdust. Yeah. Well, when the fibres of the material of your clothes rub against each other, they produce the, the material equivalent of sawdust, and that's little particles of fluff. Now, they're going to smear all over your tummy, and the, the effect of gravity and the fact that there is um, a space there means that that's the logical place for them to collect, because otherwise they're going to be pushed out the bottom. So those that travel downwards are going to fall into your belly button, and then they're going to, to loiter in there because they're all going to jam together. And that's why you tend to find belly button fluff in some people. <laughs> and in fact, there's a guy called um, Karl Krishelnitsky, who's a science communicator in Australia, and he got an Ig Nobel Prize, which is a sort of joke Nobel, about <laughs> 10 years ago, um, because he did a survey around Australia and asked people to send in some of their belly button fluff because he wanted to find out why it always appears to be blue. Is yours blue? <laughs> no, mine is rather white or yeah. grey. Okay, well, you buck Carl's trend. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's why. And the, the blue colour was probably because a lot of blue clothing um, okay. is worn by people. And, and if you've got white clothing and then you mix a bit of blue to white, you still get blue, don't you? So that's probably why you get these darker colours on the whole. Because we have some energy, and then somehow, you know, energy, uh, you know, our sources, you know, create this uh, uh, some line of uh, pulling whatever it is, you know. All right, Nazim, thank you so much uh, for, okay. for your call. Uh, we just have a, to get through a few others. Uh, James in Gordons Bay. Hi, James. Hi there. Um, quite randomly, why when, um, if I'm 85 kilograms and I eat some food, my weight doesn't change after I've eaten food? Why? Well, it does a little bit, but you have to, to remember how much does the food weigh relative to how much do you weigh. So if you eat a big 
big bowl of food, it's probably a couple of hundred grams, two or three hundred, four hundred grams, uh, relative to yeah. a body of 60, 70 kilos. So you need pretty accurate weighing scales in order to pick up the food contribution. Also, um, I mean, some people, they make space for the food, let's say, by visiting the lavatory before they eat. Uh, it, they also may go and void what's in their bladder, and this also loses a couple of hundred grams. So once you actually add it all up together, then it's all pretty much in balance, and that's why you don't see your weight change. Okay. Cool. Okay, James, thank you, thank you so much. Um, Chris, let's just uh, get you to respond to some of the SMSs uh, that we have coming through. Uh, Patton Pretoria wants to know what actually is happening when one has nightmares. And Olga has this question. We're told that the Earth's magnetic field is changing. How does this happen and how does it affect us and animals? Well, nightmares are dreams. Uh, we don't know why some dreams are pleasant and others are unpleasant, but you do tend to get unpleasant dreams when you're worried about something, when something has influenced your psyche and well-being during the day or during the week leading up to the time you have the nightmare or when you have had a very unpleasant life experience at some point in the past and your brain in some way ends up entrenched in this process of replaying that memory sometimes in graphic detail it's like post-traumatic stress disorder when you go to sleep and and it can be very troubling for some people but nightmares are effectively just unpleasant dreams um, the other question, ask me the, the second one again. Let me go through that. Uh, it says, if I can find it, um, whew, where is it? Magnetic fields. Oof. Magnetic fields, yes. right. So why yes. does the Earth have a magnetic field? Well, the answer is we don't really know. Um, it probably depends on the fact that the Earth has a molten interior. There's so much heat and pressure in there that the rock is made liquid. And the rock is very iron-rich, so we think there's an iron core or an outer core in the Earth's centre. And because this is liquid and it's also moving because the Earth is moving, you have this big body of molten iron moving, and this contributes what we call a geodynamo to the Earth. And in some way, via a process that geologists are still trying to fathom out, it produces a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. That behaves as though there is a giant bar magnet inside the Earth pointing uh, with its south pole where we call the north pole and its north pole where we call the south pole and this produces magnetic field lines around the Earth's surface. Now, we know from ancient records, both written into rocks uh, over millions to thousands of years timescales, and also written into the logs of James Cook's voyages around the world when he went down to Australia, for example, a few hundred years ago, we know that the magnetic field has changed and deviated away from where it was when James Cook was doing his stuff and when the ocean floor was forming millions of years ago because we've got the evidence for it. How does this happen? Well, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that the Earth's magnetic field seems to flip round every 100,000 years or so. Unusually, for the last 800,000 years, it hasn't changed, or not changed mm -hmm. very much. It's just wandered a little bit. So we think we're probably overdue for one of these flips, but we don't exactly know why they happen, but it must be some kind of turbulence or reversal in the spinning or the momentum of the iron core inside the Earth that produces the field. And that's the best we can offer as, as an explanation at the moment. All right, a final one for you, Chris. And briefly, Sipo uh, in Winchester Hills wants to know, if I placed a used string of dental floss under a microscope, what am I likely to see? Well, it depends how powerful the microscope is. If you've got a fairly low-powered microscope, you're just going to see the, the, the fibres of the dental floss. If you've got a much more powerful microscope, which will magnify, say, 800 times or so, you will see microorganisms. And, in fact, if you were to stain the dental floss with what we call gram stain, 
this is a, a material, a chemical, that gets into the wall of microorganisms, you would see little purple and pink blobs. Your mouth is full of what we call viridans streptococci, and streptococci are gram-positive bugs. They form little strings or chains of organisms. They look like beads on a string down a microscope, so they're going to have a nice purpley colour down the microscope, these little beads on a string, each of them about a thousandth of a millimetre across. And, in fact, uh, that's a practical that people do when they go to university. You, you often get someone to run a, um, a swab around their teeth and then smear it on a slide, fix it in place, and then put some of this gram stain on. You can see the, the bacteria that are, that are living in your mouth, and there are millions of them. Our mouths are, uh, have got millions and millions and millions of these, of these viridan streptococci and other organisms in them, as have other animals' mouths as well. They're a, they're a thriving pit of bacteria, which will probably put you off kissing someone again. Oh dear. Fascinating stuff as <laughs> usual, Chris. And I think after Nazim's uh, call, I'm going to take a closer look at my belly button. Brings a whole new meaning to navel gazing, I think. Chris, thank you so much. And that was The Naked Science. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.